My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got a minute shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. predation theory like us being preyed upon is really only half of the picture it's just like we got all these instincts from being prey but once we learned how to effectively defend ourselves from neanderthals and then start killing neanderthals and then ridding them from our territories we became predators and that's like the other half of our instincts missing link, a severed branch of our ancestral tree. For decades, great minds have sought to explain their convictions only to come short of proving their theories. Now enter an alternative. Could it be that we aren't missing an ancient ancestor, but instead an ancient adversary? Did the Neanderthal nearly hunt man to extinction, driving our primitive forebearers to develop tools and weapons to survive, forever changing, shaping, and molding the trajectory of human civilization? Today we ponder these possibilities with Garrett Blackburn, the man behind the hit kit, our number one sponsor here on the show. He is an engineer, he is a creator, creative mind, and he is also fascinated in the realm of Neanderthal predation theory, which we will be discussing today. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast post episode 300. You know we're kicking ass and taking names. 10,000 downloads per episode, baby. Come on, let's double it. Let's make it to 20,000. I can't do it without you, my loving, adoring, amazing I'm adoring you. I'm loving you, the audience. You guys are great, okay? You don't have to adore me. You don't have to love me. All that matters is that you listen, but I love you. And that should be that all that matters to you. Well, let's get on with the episode.
Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and today I have a very special guest. He is a premium supporter, someone who's been helping you, the listener, get two episodes a week. Without him, who knows? Maybe we would already have quit the podcast. So big shout out to this guy. He is the man behind the scenes here at the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, our Number one sponsor, Garrett Blackburn, the man behind the Hit Kit. And we're not just going to be talking about the Hit Kit today, folks. This isn't just one big promo. We've got a very special topic planned, subject that Garrett is fascinated with, as am I. He was kind enough to send me a book. And although we weren't able to get in touch with the author of this book, we decided we would come together and cover this subject. But before we get to that, Garrett, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Man, I'm excited to be here. I've been listening since, I guess, a little bit before 200. You had that mega episode. So, but yeah, how I found you, I believe you're a guest on Bledsoe Said So. And I remember Ryan said that your podcast was black belt level. And that got my attention. And (laughs) I got hooked after that. That's too kind. Um, Wow. But yeah, regarding like the sponsoring, uh, yeah, shortly after I started like listening, like you, I mean, it was, it did take very long to find out that you like to smoke and that you were looking for a sponsor. So I thought like, I'll be damned. This is just, what the hell? I need to do this. (laughs) Yeah. Good pairing. I, I hope it's, I hope it's afforded you some new customers and all that. But yeah, I'm, I've been stoked to, accept all these kind hit kit gifts that you've sent me. I've given a few to friends and I got a few here on my desk that I just have cause they just look cool and I like keeping them. I like keeping the Kabbalion, the seven hermetic principles one you sent me on my desk. Cause it's good to remember, but, but yeah. So tell us about this, man. You're a listener of the show, people listening there. You're one of them in a sense. Okay. We got that out of the way. But you're very unique in the sense that unlike maybe people who, like me, started a podcast, you started your own business. You created a gizmo. You created a gadget, a contraption, as I call it. I don't know know how you feel about those words. I don't know how you feel about my ads either because I just say all kinds of crazy stuff. I love them. We've never, ever once, I don't think I've ever been like, hey, what do you think about this before I say it? I just go ahead and say it. But when did this start for you? Have you always been a sort of technically savvy kind of guy, like putting stuff together? or have you always been interested in that kind of thing building oh yeah absolutely but on your outros like truth be told they fire me up like i'm building all these myself listening to your podcast and i, I kind of look forward to the end of each episode it, it just gets me pumped i mean it's kind of like a solitary activity building these things in here so mm. it's kind of it, anyway I, I appreciate you and all that you've done for me on that yeah but, uh, in regards to uh, building things and whatnot yeah it's Growing up, I was addicted to blocks and then Legos, and I was an only child, so they kind of were my friends. And uh, later in life, that turned into an engineering degree just because I wanted to make stuff. And I remember I got my first engineering job out of college. I was making polyester resin, which is the most exciting thing in the world, right? (laughs) No, it really was cool for for, for a couple of years, but I mean, I figured it out. And then it kind of occurred to me that companies like this 
they don't really want a creative person necessarily. They just want someone who understands resin really well and just kind of be their resident expert to ask like, Hey, what do we do? I mean, it just kind of seemed like it would get old and boring after a while. Mm -hmm. And it's not really why I got into engineering. So you didn't want to be a cog in someone else's machine. I literally felt like a cog in a machine that (laughs) came up on my mind a lot back then. But I looked into other jobs trying to find the job that I was actually looking for. And it seemed like everything required like a master's or a PhD and, I was like, man, that's a big commitment. Like I'd have to go into some major debts, donate several years of my life. And even then it's like, there's no guarantee that I'm going to get what I want on the other, on the other side. But then it occurred to me that if I start my own thing, I don't, I can do that right away. I don't have to ask anyone's permission. I can just make things, which that was the objective the whole time. So yeah, it's, it's fulfilling. I love it. Now, did you start with the hit kit, or was there a, a d- invention that you came up with? Because I'm going to call it an invention. I don't know how you describe it, but would you consider your hit kit an invention, right? I mean, you, you came I up like with Gizmo. it. I like Gizmo. You said Gizmo earlier. I'll take that one. <laughs> well, so, okay, so is, is that your first Gizmo you created, or did you have others that came first? All right. So before HitKit, I had a business called Glass Lung. I was actually making mason jar bongs. And uh, this was my first business. I, when I had that resin job for about a year and a half, I was secretly trying to scale this thing up on the side, kind of like living like a double life. Because right. I mean, I don't think corporate wanted to hear that I was making a bong business. <laughs> but eventually I got it to the point where I could go full time with it. And yeah, so took glass long. That was my full-time job for about two and a half, three years, I think. And then I ended up having to leave that. I was living on the other side of the country in Reno, Nevada. I didn't have any family there or anything. Also, Reno's got like a certain time of the year where like, I don't know, it's like the, the ski slopes are closed, but there's still snow on the mountains. You can't hike. I was just like isolated and inside and I got depressed Mm. and I was like, I got to the business is still good. I gave it to a friend. I was like, I need to change gears. So I moved back home to where family is in Georgia, which is where I was raised, where I'm at right now. And started working for the family business a bit. And that was something like I never really wanted to do because I wanted to make gizmos. But I was like, I'm going to give it a give it a shot. I was selling and repairing tow trucks. Good business and all. But I mean, it just didn't scratch that itch that I was looking to scratch. So I was like, maybe, I wonder if I still got it. And I guess like, yeah, I guess the, that was kind of the depression. It's like after I left Glass Lung and gave it all away, I was like, do I still have it? Do I, can I still create? Like, I felt like I lost like a core aspect of myself. Like, I guess kind of what I derived myself worth from. Mm. So when I got back to Georgia, it was like, what can I make? What can I make? What can I make? And that's kind of how HitKit materialized. So it was really in that same realm of glass long. It's just like a different line of canvas products. So anyway, so this is like try to it at all. I got to do it. It's just, it's like gravity's just pulling me to make these things. Yeah. Well, and I get the sense, <laughs> I get the sense that this is something that you're still actively working on. It's not something that you like the HitKit it's a successful product in the sense that it has an application, but you're still, you still have goals with the hit kit that have yet to be accomplished. Right. 
the goal is just to make things. I, I just want to keep one upping myself. Um, mm. And with every one of these hit kits, like it's not enough for me to just make a box. I'm trying to build some kind of clever mechanism into it. That's, that's the fun of it. That's, that's why I like making things uh, kind of that. It, it's, it's fun to solve a puzzle, but it's also like a certain fun in creating a puzzle. Yeah. So I don't know if like hit kits going to be what I do forever per se. Like I just want to, keep making stuff yeah but i'm hoping that hit kit can kind of get this get this going reach a certain level of financial stability where i can like really start to broaden into other things mm. so anyway i don't know we'll see where it goes i'm having fun yeah no i love it i really Journey appreciate continues. i really appreciate the product i mean like i said it's something i use daily i'm sure people who smoke who haven't picked it up yet will find a tremendous value add to their daily routine or weekly routine, depending on how often they smoke. But this is something that I think, you, you know, when it comes to solving problems, it's definitely a stoner oriented solution for sure. <laughs> you seem to have a knack for that. Even the, the glass lung, I love that. You showed me some photos actually sparked by a memory of that. And I loved it when you showed me that because I'm like, oh, the number one reason why I never used a bong is because they get all dirty and you got to throw them out eventually or clean them and you got to <laughs> put all kinds of chemicals in to clean them and all this. And it was always just too much, too much work, right? And the thought that I could just take the glass, unscrew it, maybe discard it, maybe reuse it, maybe plant yeah. something in it, right? And then just put, swap in a new one, right? I that to me is pretty damn neat. So I would say put them together, right? I mean, make the glass lung hit kit, you expand from there. You've got some other ideas as far as smoker oriented contraptions. I'm not going to reveal any of your secrets, but there was one that you sent me that's really exciting. Yeah. But, but yeah, when it comes to your inventing process, how limited are you by your materials? Like, is the hit kit sort of born out of the fact that like now you have the 3d printer and like the wood cutter and that sort of the, these tools, like I imagine glass lung was pretty simple, right? You're cutting tin, inserting, gluing, maybe what, what are your like material application? What's that process like? Like with, with the hit kit, obviously it's kind of wood and this 3D printed plastic. Is that why you came up with these products? Because you're sort of, all right, what do I have? What can I work with? Okay, I can work with 3D printer. I can work with this wood cutter. Like how how far are you planning on expanding the, the tools? Because I imagine the amount of things you can create just it grows exponentially based on what kind of tools you're working with in your shop yeah absolutely i guess the tool limitations definitely steers design yeah right now i've got working with i've got the, my two 3d printers which you might be able to see behind me yeah i got my cnc laser over on the side so i mean i don't really look at this limitations so much it's kind of sets the boundaries of where i can go and then mm. i can explore within them better Mm. But, but yeah, I could see this thing as it grows. I'd love to get like a CNC lathe, CNC mill. There's like CNC wire benders. There's, yeah, it'd be nice to get some more toys someday. But yeah, I've got some more stuff coming right now. I'm in the process of getting a couple of my designs injection molded, but I don't want to say too much about that right now. So I'm working on scaling up. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to see it, man. And I hope that 
people support through the podcast with the promo code and you can keep upgrading. But yeah, there's definitely, there's so many like ideas I have in this realm. It's just hard to, to verbalize them without the engineering words. Uh, Man, the correct, the exciting, the exciting thing about this, it's like the wild west. Mm. Like I remember when I was trying to decide like what major I wanted to go into, I started off like someone told me like, Oh, mechanical engineers, they work on cars. And I was thinking, well, that's boring. Everyone's figured out cars. I don't know. It's just, I I feel like with, with cars, there's no more low hanging fruit. Mm. So it's like, you're not going to find anything is any groundbreaking. It seems kind of like in some industries, I don't know. Is it, is it just already explored, explored the world, so to speak. But when it comes to cannabis products, it's, I don't know, it's just kind of new ground. I feel like there's, there's new things to make. Like yeah. no one's made like joint lighter holders. So, I mean, I've got all kinds of possibilities. Well, if that, that makes any sense. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I really loved about you reaching out to me is that I'm always, I've always been the type of guy that like, holds on to these little containers that they give you when you buy like pre-rolls or whatever. This is for like pre-roll tips because I just like the wooden tips to roll my blunts with. But I've always I've always hated the fact that these get like really kind of skunky after a while. And what I like about your wooden hit kit is that it kind of airs itself out after a while and it doesn't keep that. And I haven't had these for a very long time, but the wood smell overpowers that kind of funkiness and you can kind of leave it open and let it air out. So that, that is one thing that you've definitely innovated, but what, like, what are some ideas floating around as far as like where you could innovate in the cannabis space even further? I mean, what else is there to do? I've got no idea. That's just <laughs> inspiration strikes when it strikes. Right. Well, I'm, I guess that is a dumb these containers for now. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that was a dumb question on my part, but I I was trying to kind of lead into a segue about the evolution of something, and that Uh, would maybe be a neat segue to the Neanderthal thing, but not quite. So anyways, now that we're here, when you're listening to, or when when you're crafting in your workshop, you're listening to tons of podcasts, right? Was the Neanderthal subject something that you heard on a podcast and that kind of sparked your interest? Was it like an audio book you found? How did you first get in touch with this whole subject? Because I hadn't heard of it until you brought it up with me. What blows me away, like I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've never heard anyone mention this one time. Like, like honestly, like I'm a bit of an introvert, like being on a podcast isn't something I like normally I would seek out to do, but I just want to inject this topic into the conspiracy paradigm because it belongs. Yeah, uh, People are overlooking this. And this theory, this book we're going to be discussing, I'm, I'm trying to talk without, without giving any spoilers right now for what's to come. But I mean, it was released in 2009. I read it and I, I came across it on, like, on some internet forum. People were like recommending books. I was just like, I was like, oh, that looks interesting. Cool. Bought it and... What I found, I think it's Graham Hancock tier. And I mean, that's a pretty big claim, but uh, this, this affects everything. I mean, not just like it's, it's got some potentially very large implications. Like it, oh man, that's, yeah, we'll, we'll find out soon. We'll be getting into this. Yeah. So 
to to bring people into how you and I kind of got around to the, putting this episode together, you sent me Danny Vendramini's book, which is titled Them Plus Us, How Neanderthal Predation Created Modern Humans. And uh, yeah, honestly, haven't got around to reading much of it, but what I have read is fascinating. What I also found fascinating is that for the most part, Vendramini is kind of like many fringe researchers exiled or outcasted from his field right his his peers his colleagues do not support his speculations his theories and maybe that's partly why he never answered my emails to come on the podcast because he might be afraid that people are just trying to debate him or humiliate him further right because like you said about your engineering it's like you you would be taking a tremendous risk to get your master's in engineering, right? So imagine someone who takes that risk. They put all this time into school, and then their theory is like basically getting them ostracized, right? I mean, so he could be just afraid to, to sort of comment on this publicly after the backlash he received. But it did strike me as a theory that could fall under this domain of topics they do not want people looking further into for many different reasons. And I think you feel the same way, right? That's there. There's no telling. I mean, there doesn't even have to be like a conspiracy about like why it's not out. I mean, I just think about Graham Hancock and his critics, the Egyptologists whose careers are basically married to their body of work and they just they just can't have a question because i mean it's not just an affront to them financially but to their egos so i mean anytime you introduce something as big as this neanderthal predation theory topic i mean it's just something like this isn't going to be accepted quickly i think it's yeah yeah definitely so now let's get into it a little bit so the theory is that Neanderthals have existed concurrently with humans from a very early point in our history. And because of their apex predator role in the hierarchy, they actually kind of created a lot of the behavioral traits that we now, you know, have as human beings, although they're not present in their ancient form, there is a thought that, many human beings now existing what we would consider homo sapiens descended somehow from neanderthals so there's an aspect of i don't know if it was rape or otherwise but if these neanderthals were as brutal as the theory suggests i'm sure they were probably sexually assaulting women and that's partly why there's that well human women right maybe that's why there's that neanderthal overlap in the dna right this is something that happens in tribal cultures right where one party raids another and women are part of the prize quote unquote that's taken after the war raid so maybe neanderthals sort of i don't know engendered these behaviors in us as human beings maybe the the Mm -hmm. omnivore side of us was sort of sharpened by the predatory carnivore Neanderthal. Yeah, I think we need to back up a bit. Let's um, back up. Like, 
for starters, like the mainstream understanding of the Neanderthals, like if you go to a zoo or not a zoo, <laughs> go to a museum where they like have a display or an exhibit about Neanderthals, they basically have them like looking kind of like us, right? They kind of think of them as, I don't know, they don't really describe much character to them. They're just like, oh, well, there was some other, they were kind of like us. They lived around the same time. They just kind of did their own thing. And sometimes we hung out with them. So, I mean, the things that like you just said about like Neanderthals being these predators, like to like a mainstream person hearing that for the first time, they're going to be like, wait, what? So well, some people say, like, I guess the mainstream says like, yeah, if you took a Neanderthal, you gave him like a good shave, put a hat on him, put him in a suit. He could walk down the street and don't think anything of it. But so it's kind of like this, well, Benjamini's a picture of what a Neanderthal is. It's very different from that. But, but let's back up to Darwin real quick, right? So uh, Darwin's theory of evolution, basically like random things, random mutation, and then you got some evolutionary pressures from your environment. Basically, it's like a very slow, slow process, very slow development of things. And it has a very major problem with it. And that problem is us, humanity, our civilization. Because when we look at the archaeology, the fossil records, basically 50,000 years ago, we basically went from chimps to what we are now, like a very fast process, like something radical happened. Like all of a sudden we have a complex language, clothes, technology. It's, and not only that, but like, have you thought about like how of all the primates on this planet, like we're the only hairless ones. Mm, mm. Like there's no, like they're always looking for the missing link. They're trying to, to find this. Everyone's looking for this bridge from these like more primitive primates, ancient primates, like what we are today and they can't find it. Right. So it's like, they know there's a problem, but I'm not sure what it is. So I know in like the conspiracy realm, Joe Rogan likes to talk about Terrence McKenna's stone ape theory. Basically, like there was some climate type change maybe affected the environment where these chimp-like creatures lived. They found some mushrooms. They simulated some brain activity. And then, ta-da, here we are today. Right. I guess it's some other theorists say that some, for some reason we started eating meat. And then, ta-da, the extra protein. We are here now. Well, and, um, and even I think that part of that is the fact that we started cooking meat. Yeah. And going from taking raw meat and digesting it in our stomach, taking some of that workload off by cooking it first allowed our brain to evolve more, right? That's a, another part of that theory. And then, of course, there's the folks who throw all of that out and say, no, God created it all. And then, of course, there's the people who want to invent a new god with aliens. And they say, oh, no, aliens did it. Aliens came here. They separated us. And, I mean, if you look at some of these ancient texts, they suggest things like gods yeah. and weird beings coming here. But throw all that aside for now, folks, right? Because how much of what we just described is involved in this theory? Not much of it, right? This is kind of groundbreaking in the sense that it doesn't... It's necessarily it's not predicated upon any of the things we just suggested yeah this is 
another explanation. This is an explanation that nobody seems to have heard of, mm. and it rings true with me. I, it's, I mean, I, I first read this book, I think, in like 2018, and I, I'm still telling people about it to this day. No one knows about it. I've never heard about it on a podcast, so I guess I'll kind of dig into what it is now. So please, this is an explanation as to how 50,000 years ago, we suddenly went from basically like a chimp-like creature into what we are today. And so here's basically how the story goes. So I guess there was a group of, a group of early hominids around Africa, somewhere then, somewhere around there. And over a long period of time, they kind of, their population grew. They spread out to other parts of the world. And uh, some of these went to Europe, and Europe was a lot colder than it is today, and kind of periodically was going through all these ice ages. It was a very tough place to survive. So these hominids that went there, they had to adapt to their environment. They had to adapt to the cold and find a way to survive these European winters. And just think about like the difference between like a black bear and a polar bear. Like the polar bear is a hell of a lot bigger, bigger, stronger, more fur, more fat, more blubber. They're like stocky. They are made to handle the cold. So these hominids that went up to Europe, they had similar changes take place to them. Like compared to like what we are today, if you look at Neanderthal skeletons, like they're these, you can tell they're hardy. They're, they're made for those winters. So furthermore, Based on like their skeletons, like their size, I guess we can kind of tell like what their weight is. But basically, for something like that to survive, it was going to need a lot of meat. And in this book, Danny says that I'm going to call him Danny, like a, like I know him. But Danny's saying it's like they couldn't have been scavengers. Like that's not going to produce enough meat to feed these guys. Like these guys need about 4.1 pounds of meat every day, and Think about like how many cheeseburgers that is. I mean, you're not going to just find that scavenging. So he says there's no evidence that they were ever doing any fishing. So they must have been hunters. They must have hunted their meat. And it, it seems like they had, they had like some basic tool use. They know, knew how to make fire. They had spears with stone tips. So they're just like up there in Europe trying to, hunt deer. This was like a time of like woolly mammoth, woolly rhinoceros. I mean, there was saber toothed tigers. Like there's some big game up there. And so they had to be big too, to hunt these things. And they had to be strong. I think Neanderthals were, Danny says like six times stronger than a human today, but they bested their environments and they became the apex predators of Europe. Now, remember earlier when I was saying that, like, the mainstream understanding of the Neanderthal is that they were just, I mean, they, just, they don't describe much character to them. They just, like, anthropomorphize them. Whereas what I'm describing with these apex predators, oh, yeah, another adaptation I didn't mention, like, the mainstream kind of shows them no fur, like, relative, I mean, a little hairier, like a hairy man, basically. They kept their fur. These things were, like, more like gorilla-like, really. So, I mean, it's like a very different picture of uh, compared to like what the mainstream is showing us. Like these were 
just imagine like giant gorillas with spears who were murdering everything. It's it's pretty out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Now something that just came to mind and excuse me if we're getting ahead of the the subject here, but Sasquatches. Yeah. That's what came to mind when you described Neanderthals. I mean, is it possible that they are a remnant of Neanderthals and that's why they're unclassified by zoology and they're in the realms of cryptozoology? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. Danny thinks we killed them all. It's possible that if not Neanderthal, then maybe some other hominid similar to the Neanderthal. I mean, who knows? Now, I definitely think something. I got something for Dr. Narco Walgo also. Oh, shoot. Save that towards the end. Don't forget (laughs) that because we will will share that with him. I'm going to be doing a show with him soon. But but now... I did get ahead of you because you just said Danny believes, Danny Vendermini, the author of the book we're discussing, Them Plus Us, or Them and Us, he says that all the Neanderthals were killed by human beings. So that's obviously fast-forwarding on the timeline quite a bit. So how did we go how did we go from them being apex predators dominating Europe during this sort of global ice period, right? Because we're Right now, according to some researchers, in a mini ice age. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this is as extreme temperatures as what they're experiencing back then. Probably not. But how did we get from the Neanderthals, top of the food chain, at least in Europe, to humans killing them all? All right. So, So the hominids that did not go to Europe, a lot of them stayed in Africa. They basically lived on the savanna. Life was a lot easier there. They could be omnivores, just like small game, nuts, berries, whatever they could find, that sort of thing. And basically, over time, a portion of portion of them moved up into the Levant, basically like where modern day Jerusalem, Palestine, Israel, Syria, Jordan, that, that region, right? So they're living up there. They're living the good life. And then... Someday, for some reason, some of these Neanderthals came south. Benjamini thinks that perhaps there was another ice age there that got too cold for even the Neanderthals, and maybe climate is what pushed them back. But uh, yeah, in this area, the Levant, and one day our ancestors like came across a Neanderthal, and uh, it, it wasn't pretty. So they, the period of time... They co-inhabited this area. I think it ranged from 100,000 years ago to 50,000 years ago. So 50,000 years, they shared this land. And during that time, our ancestors got decimated. I mean, 50,000 years, that's that's kind of like a long time. But anyway, point is, we were their prey. They kicked our asses. And... This was one hell of a selection pressure. So basically, if you were slow or dumb, you got killed. Only the smart and the fast survived. So uh, over the course of 50,000 years of them predating upon us, Neanderthal predation theory, it began to mold us from some kind of relatively timid, docile primate species 
into something mean. But uh, so these Neanderthals, like, so those are kind of the obvious ways that they could shape a species. But Danny's kind of come up with some less obvious, specific ones. Like, for instance, if we're going to survive these Neanderthals, we have to have the ability to differentiate us from them. We got to know if it's friend or foe. And I'm sure you've heard of the uncanny valley. It's like we see a face out there. We recognize it as not quite human, and it makes us feel a sense of unease. Mm. So it's like this is an instinct that could have come from back then. But uh, but at, at the start of this predation period, like we were relatively hairy too. They were very hairy because they had all that winter fur. And uh, I guess as a, as a means of differentiation, well, well, we hated the Neanderthals. We hated them coming in, kicking our asses, raping our women, all that. <laughs> so apparently if you were hairy, it, it kind of reminded the tribe of Neanderthals. You're probably like less likely to get laid and reproduce. And so kind of like a means of self-differentiation. It's like we gradually lost our hair. It's like by becoming these relatively hairless creatures, we could easily tell us from them. So, I mean, that's kind of like one of the the great questions of the mainstream. It's like, of all these hundreds of primates out there, why are we the only hairless one? Right. Because, I mean, hair, like, serves, like, fur in particular, serves some crucial purposes, not just to protect against the cold, but to protect against the heat. Mm. Like, you look at a lot of these, like, big animals in Africa, like lions, they have fur. And I mean, it's, they're not hot. It, it keeps them cool actually. Right. But so, I mean, that's like one thing. It's one adaptation. So yeah, the ability to differentiate us from them. Well, it makes um, sense that on a social level too, that you know, humans would begin to select for that trait to differentiate between, but now you see, Throughout time, I mean, even a couple hundred years ago, you'd have like these sorts of people end up in the circus and whatnot. I think mm-hmm. now there's a man who has his whole family. They're called like the wolf people of Mexico because they just have like fur all over their face and they kind of almost look like wolves a little bit. Just the way that their features have kind of shown after growing all this hair. So it's not totally unheard of for even now in the modern era to have human beings with full coats of fur all over their skin. So clearly this is something that's possible. I mean, maybe this is something that, yeah, is genetically just very rare now because it was sort of bred away and it only expresses itself in rare sort of maybe instances. Yeah, but I mean, like, furthermore, it's like, even today, like, what we consider sexually attractive, it's basically whatever the opposite of a Neanderthal right. was. So, like, like symmetry of faces, like, Neanderthal faces were probably like chimp faces, and therefore very unsymmetrical. Mm. Neanderthals were, like, short and stocky. Like, today, people value height. Mm. Neanderthals had, like, weak chins. So, today, we value strong chins. Even like the way we walk, like the, it's we have a very different gait compared to other primates. And it's, that was probably part of like an attempt to 
have a way to differentiate us from them, like at a distance, like, oh yeah, that guy walks right. He's, he's good. Mm, right. So it's kind of like our desire to be nothing like the Neanderthals, like our most hated enemy changed us. And to that effect, Van, Benjamin, Danny, he's got a, another book called The Second Evolution that came out this year. And he's developed something called team theory, like all that junk DNA we've got floating around that no one knows what it is. Mm. He, he thinks that's kind of like, uh, he's got this theory that our emotions, if we have a strong emotional reaction to something or a strong desire, it has a way of encoding itself into our DNA. So that was also kind of part of how, kind of part how we were able to make all these adaptations, all these changes in a short period of time. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, he he says in the pre in the preface of this book we've been discussing. Six years later, the British journal Medical Hypothesis published the results of my research: non-coding DNA and the team theory of inheritance, emotions, and innate behavior. The paper presented a radical new theory of the evolution of behavior to explain how animals acquired new instincts and emotions. Its central proposition was that high intensity emotional experiences usually caused by traumatic events like predator attacks accidents and natural disasters can under certain circumstances be permanently encoded into an area of an animal's genome called non-protein coding dna this is the part that is usually dismissed as junk dna it soon became apparent that team theory was a kind of master key that could open other doors. For instance, explaining how humans acquired the repository of innate behaviors and emotions we call human nature. When I applied team theory to what had transformed humans from Stone Age African hominids into fully modern humans, why we look and act the way we do, and even why we're obsessed with sex and violence and good and evil— it proposed a single, simple explanation that was both extraordinary and unexpected. The result is a unified theory of human origins called Neanderthal predation theory, or NP theory, which is based on a fundamental reassessment of Neanderthal behavioral ecology. So there's something that I was reminded of when you said that and kind of explains team theory in a brief way, but yeah, it's fascinating to consider sex and violence and also this sort of moral good and evil, this like, it seems innate, but maybe that's a result of this very ancient history that we have and this sort of like flash photography, our DNA mm -hmm. captures these moments as they occurred to us. And then you can see it in smaller animals where their DNA is sort of, although separated by physical space, sharing information with one another to the point where animals show these genetic evolutions on, on such a small time scale, like over three, four generations of, of a species, you can see certain behavioral traits evolving based on the actions of one or two members of that species. And to think about humans as maybe a more complex animal, it only makes sense that we would follow similar sort of protocols on a genetic level. So yeah, this is something that 
I wonder if they're kind of manipulating to this day with these mass trauma rituals that we talk about so much in the conspiracy theory realm. Even today, not today, but this week, we have the whole nation focused on these billionaires blowing up in a submarine next to the Titanic where 100 years ago, a bunch of billionaires died. So it's like, what what are, what are they doing to us when they snapshot fear or doom or demise in, into our cerebellum and into our DNA, right? Man, I had not thought of that. And if there is a reason for a cover-up, that's, that's it. I mean, <laughs> it might be kind of controversial if we were to learn that they are intentionally altering our DNA through traumatic events. I mean, that's, it's possible. Well, and then to what, to what effect we couldn't know, but I I wonder maybe this is the X-Men comic books I've been reading coming through to me, but in the X-Men comic books, Apocalypse, his whole, he's a villain. His whole fascination is to put, inflict as much pain and trauma on mutants so that they keep evolving to be like these supreme beings, right? He's this villain. And that's kind of what's neat about the X-Men is they don't really come up with this stuff out of thin air they're kind of trying to you know pretty transparently in a lot of cases relate to the actual world around them and i wonder if some of these super villains are like the conspiracy theory villains that we talk about just through the the pages of a comic book it definitely seems like that could be the case where we have these elites who feel like they're entitled to evolve us to the next stage of humanity and they'll do whatever it takes to to take us there right maybe if that even means sacrificing thousands of us in these world wars or in medical experiments or so on and so forth i mean the the past 2 300 years of history certainly has a record of traumatic events right so we don't have to look very far to find a a whole huge list of those. Hmm. Yeah, I do think that there are some at the top who basically view themselves as gardeners of mm. humanity. And I guess the use of team theory is just like a tool they have that I hadn't really considered. Well, and, and um, that's the beauty of this sort of position we have on a philosophy podcast where, you know, we could just sort of speculate and ask questions and apply the, what's the right term I'm thinking of, the art of analogy hmm. to understand things that maybe we're not experts in, like what the elites are doing, right? <laughs> Who could be an expert in that other than them? But yeah, I think Meany, it's exciting to hear he's still publishing books maybe there's hope for an interview with him on this show if people are listening they want to try to help out get in touch with them tweet at them say hey the my family thinks some crazy podcast wants to interview you (laughs) but where were we where were we so we have these basically genetic variants that are expressed during traumatic events so these neanderthals attacking tribes of homo sapiens or what was what would become homo sapiens this is where we find this sort of duality possibly between the other the stranger and the familiar the family right and this kind of dichotomy that has existed even in well especially in religions where you have the devil and the creator the father and the mother who's usually at least in the past thousand years kind of bastardized as the devil or characterized as sinful or unclean right that's kind of we have this 
to a flawed effect this duality in a lot of cultures yeah really it's even light versus dark and i don't think i mentioned this but these neanderthals were probably nocturnal wow so they made the dark extra scary right so I guess to kind of get back into Danny's work a little bit. Well, that would probably so like explain most... the human's love of fire because you would yeah. have to have a campfire maybe as protection at night and to illuminate your surroundings and be wary of an attack if it was coming. Well, the Neanderthals knew how to use fire too, so that would protect against a lot of a mm. lot of threats, but not them. Wow. So yeah, most terrestrial as to why... We think they were probably nocturnal. It's just that's the case of most terrestrial land predators. Like all the big cats, they hunt at night. Yeah, everything really. And then when you look at Neanderthal skulls, like their their eye sockets are massive, which why would they need that if they didn't have big eyes? So big eyes, night vision. Another thing most of these land predators have is like a very keen sense of smell. Because if you're hunting at night, since carry further, it's just a yeah, it's just a typical adaptation for that sort of land predator. So they probably had it too. Oh yeah, they had a big nasal cavity. So we've got some evidence there as well. But, uh, but yeah, Neanderthals, they'd come in the middle of the night. They, for 50,000 years, they made night just the scariest thing. And uh, to get back to what you're saying, that was probably had some like religious implications down the road, even when we forgot about Neanderthals. Like we still had this ancestral memory of a fear, fear of the dark. Um, Danny even says like children, like we're, we're born with like an instinctual fear of the dark, fear of monsters. And maybe Neanderthals had something to do with that. Like they scared, they scared us so bad. They made such an emotional impact well, and we still have memory of these emotional impacts. If you look at all of our mythology, I mean, for the mo- for the most part, all of our monsters are anthropomorphic. Yeah. They're not quadrupedal with claws and snarling jaws. If we were only being hunted by lions and saber-toothed tigers and things like that, you would imagine maybe our mythologies would reflect that a little bit more, but that you see things like ogres and goblins and Mm. trolls and vampires. I mean, you name it, most of them are anthropomorphic, bipedal, especially when you look at like horror movies and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you very rarely see like a coup Joe, where it's like a killer dog or a killer shark, like Jaws, right? I mean, those are their own kind of field. But yeah, I hear what you're saying with this sort of fear of the dark, the fear of the other, fear of the unfamiliar. Yeah, basically we have these ancestral memories of these giant, scary-looking things attacking us at night and... Like to this day, like for, for like the horror genre, for the monsters, it's like we might not remember the Neanderthals, but we we know what scares us. Mm, mm. Something so hunting, like right? Like being chased down by something, right? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So I feel like I've been cutting you off a bit and I know you prepared a lot, so... If you want to keep going on on track, go for it. But I do have I do have a, a question that might take us down a tangent. So you you decide. Do you want to keep presenting? I'll save my question. Or 
man, this is a big topic. There are a million different ways we could go. There's no right way. Mm. Let's see. Let's see. What was your question? Let's go with that. Well, so when we look at the junk DNA as of now, do we have other examples, other evidences of, because we named some traits, but he does mention in that quote I read, sex and violence also being a part of this. What, Where do those come into play? How does sex change due to this like relationship with the adversarial Neanderthals? All right. So I guess like on the physical level, we've got some big physical sexual differences between us and other primates. I mean, for one, bigger penises, right? Right? Yeah. So I, I guess our penises hang like, off. They don't like retract into the body like pretty much every other animal, right? I mean, if you look at... Yeah, they're massive. Yeah, well, they, they also are just, hang, they're just like on the front of us, whereas most animals, they're kind of like tucked away in between the legs, right? I mean, it's one thing that you see around nature with mammals. They don't have schlongs hanging out. It's just not, that's not a very safe way to travel through the woods or wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a very cocky adaptation to have. Right. And, uh say like hey we got one up on these predators like they might be killing us but at least we got bigger dicks so i think danny mentioned something about that i think he put a little differently than i did Um, (laughs) yeah well i don't know how many predators are jealous of that maybe neanderthals would be because they have their little tiny chimp penises (laughs) now on the female side of things like there's some some crazy things like how like women's periods can like sync up. Right. Have you ever wondered like why that is? Mm. So during the 50,000 years that Neanderthals were preying upon us, if a woman were to go into heat, it would put out like a lot of pheromones, a lot of smell. These horny Neanderthals would come in and be a threat to the whole tribe. So it's better to sync up and just get it all done together as a tribe at once for a couple of days than to have it kind of want somebody else going every off every other day. So as kind of like a means of keeping the tribe safe, that's how the, the sinking happened came to be. It became like an, an, let's see, crucial to survival. Really. Another difference primates, when they go into heat, like there's like a lot of swelling down there for them. Like if you're seeing like a baboons, like a huge ass or a chimp, like it's a, it's basically a huge visible signal saying like, hey, come get me. Oh, yeah. And well, elephants, this, they they turn completely red and go into like this crazy, like, I think if they haven't made it in a while, they become like rogue. So, yeah, so it affects animals in a crazy way. The last thing you wanted to do back then was to turn on a horny Neanderthal and have him come mm. into your camp. Like, right. So as an adaptation of survival, that went away. That's, I think that's something else the mainstream hasn't figured out how to explain. Yeah. Huh. But, but furthermore, to kind of get to romance and whatnot, which you touched on earlier, was basically when it became no longer so obvious when the fertility window was basically, if you wanted to keep your population going, you just had to have sex all the time. So you had to have, cause like basically like chimps, like if they don't see the signs, it, it, they don't, they don't have like love in their sex. 
Mm. Like they, they see the visual cues. They're like, yeah, it's time. Right. Like we're going in. But uh, romance might've happened as a means of just kind of keeping things going. Mm. That way it didn't really matter if you didn't have the visual cues. Same thing with boobs also like basically primates. They don't have them until they get pregnant. Right. So let's say a chimp sees another chimp with, with boobs and he's going to be like, Oh, she's obviously not in a fertile window. She's getting ready to have some kids. I'm not interested. This is a turnoff. So for us to like evolve boobs or women, it acted as a turnoff to the Neanderthals. Wow. And I think we recognize this and we're like, Oh yeah, these ones, the Neanderthals don't come in here to kill us trying to get them. So we need more of this. Right. And so that might even explain why we like boobs today. Huh. It's uh, this, this interest hasn't gone away. Wow. So, I mean, this Neanderthal theory really affects everything. It's like a new lens I mean, you can, you can look at like a religion, you can look at like our media, horror movies, monsters, whatnot, obviously the theory of evolution, archeology, span ancient history. I mean, it's like a very far reaching subject. It gets into every bit of why we are what we are. So King Kong is inaccurate because King Kong wouldn't have liked that voluptuous blonde chick and he would have seen her Big blonde, <laughs> blue, big tits, and thought, "Oh, I shouldn't kidnap her." <laughs> yeah, probably, probably was not King Kong's type. <laughs> well, and this is the interesting thing because I don't necessarily think that either of us believe that this negates every other theory. But the fact that this theory has been sort of left out, or maybe just hasn't been discovered until very recently. It's fascinating. I wonder where it fits into some of these other theories, because we do have evidence of the ancient use of certain drugs. And I wonder where that comes into play with this and and even religion itself, like with spirituality. Was there a sort of, I don't know, uh, uh, it was this a result, I guess, to put it better, of our relationship with this neanderthal predator is was there like a a need for faith or maybe like even like a community cohesion somehow because of this negative interaction on a frequent basis with these neanderthals is that is that explained at all by vendramini's theory yeah i'd say really anything that's like a belief in a higher power belief in something beyond you anything that would give you confidence to believe you have like the power of the whole universe behind you. Like that would might make you a better fighter, more willing to go into battle, Mm. more willing to defend what's right. You might think you're invincible. Like really I could definitely see religion arising from this conflict. I mean, it was probably just felt like good versus evil and they probably made up all everything to fit around it. I mean, this is, this is like kind of the conflict that defines everything, really. Yeah. Yeah, it does, it does seem to be left out, though. And there is an author named Gregory, Gregory Little, who maybe you're familiar with. He's put out a book mm-hmm. recently. It's on my shelf somewhere, but my shelf's all switched around, so I'm not going to be able to find it very quickly. 
so I won't waste much time looking back here. But they did. He he put out a book recently, Gregory Little and Andrew Collins, about uh, Neanderthals having a spiritual belief system, and they found evidence of this somehow. I think through a certain megalithic site. And there's also these plasma beings wrapped into this same book. So I know I'm not exactly doing the book justice with my retelling of it, but yeah, it's, it seems like it might be connected. Yeah, I, I can touch on that. Please. So basically shortly before we killed all the Neanderthals, Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, there towards the end of Neanderthal's time on this planet, there was kind of like they call it like a late flowering of Neanderthal culture during which time they probably did develop like some religion. They, we start seeing like some cultural artifacts from them. We can see where they started to paint, where they started to make some jewelry. But so it kind of seemed like they were had flipped a corner and going another direction, but then we wiped them all out. Hmm. But uh, yeah, let me, I better back up. If I can make a little more sense. Yeah, back that. up. And I'll, while you, while you collect your thoughts for a moment, I'll just say that here's the book that I was trying to think of Denisovan hmm. oh, Origin. Okay. So it's more specifically about Neanderthal human hybrids, which I guess are deemed Denisovans. Hmm. So maybe that's a, a topic we'll touch on a little bit later, but I haven't read this book, so I can't comment much on what's inside of it. But let's let's keep going with where we're at. All right. So all this time, really, we've been talking about us being the prey of them, the time when Neanderthals hunted us. And it basically reduced us into a population bottleneck. They nearly wiped us all out. Genetic evidence suggests there could have been like as few as 50 of us remaining. But uh, these few remaining ones, they were, at this point, Neanderthals had changed them big time. They were nothing like what the Neanderthals originally found 50,000 years prior when they moved into Levant, because the remaining ones were faster, stronger, smarter. They had begun living in larger societies. They had developed stronger technology, better technologies, weaponry. I mean, it was basically by killing off all the weakest ones, you had something that all of a sudden that, that they flipped the table, they became the predators and Neanderthals, they had sticks with like stone tip spears, essentially, right? Danny thinks maybe it was the development of long-range weaponry. Maybe like the atlatl, maybe stone and sling, javelins, eventually the bow and arrow, but I think that came later. But it's like, perhaps, once we figured out long-range weaponry, that's when we are able to turn the tide, and we became the predators. So this Neanderthal predation theory, like, us being preyed upon is really only half of the picture because it's like we got all these instincts from being prey. But once we learned how to effectively defend ourselves from Neanderthals and then start killing Neanderthals and then ridding them from our territories, we became predators. And that's like the other half of our instincts. So I guess to fast forward a bit, 
we, they took over that area in the Levant, right? And as their population was growing now, because their competitor or their predator was no longer a threat, they'd killed them all. They started splitting into groups. It's kind of trickle migration. So it's like, oh, there's not enough food here. You take you and your family. You go north, you go south, you go east. So some of these went back into Africa. Some of this group went into Asia, across the land bridge, made it to the Americas. But some of them went in the direction of Europe. And uh, basically, like, these migrations from this region, like, we we hated Neanderthals. And not only that, but we were psychopaths, cold-blooded killers. We probably hunted them for sport. And uh, not only Neanderthals, but anything that looks like a Neanderthal. So there's other hominid species roaming the planet at this time, simple tool users like Homo erectus. We probably killed them, too, just because they didn't look like us. Like, anything that didn't look like us was them. But regarding the Neanderthals in Europe, we start taking over their land. We start pushing them further and further westward. And how earlier it's like Neanderthal predation upon us had forced us to become a more complex species. Now our predation upon them was making them a more complex species. And this is when you, this is what explains the late flowering of Neanderthal culture. This is when, probably when and why they started developing religion and art and whatnot. But it's like it was too little, too late. And we were out to kill them. We we're out for revenge. And uh, I think the, let's see, the youngest Neanderthal fossil found was at Gibraltar. So it's like, really, we chased them all the way into Spain to that little corner. And there's like a, a cave there. And maybe that was like the last one. So, so it's kind of like a, like the timing of Neanderthal culture and how it developed. It kind of acts like an affirmation to like the rest of the theory. It, it's like, it kind of seems like in order to take some sort of primate, and make it into an intelligent, complex species, it needs a predator. And uh, yeah, it, that's that's how we developed, and that's how that's what happened to them, too. And you certainly see that relationship now beyond interspecies, now that we're the primary species of hominid on the planet, now it's gone to intertribal, and then international, mm-hmm. inner inner country right these country wars and nations even races of people fighting each other depending on what time period you're looking at but yeah it definitely seems like we adopted this warlike nature out of circumstance it wasn't something that has been with us innately because there are these complex aspects to human nature that reflect things that aren't warlike right so It is this kind of complicated story, but I see where Neanderthal predation theory kind of answers a lot of these, what are thought of as missing link mysteries, these missing link questions that have been asked and maybe certain answers have been supplied, but I don't know if they stand up to this one based on what you're saying. So now you're saying that Neanderthals out of basically reaction to humans getting the upper hand on them, turning the tide, developing technology to fight them off. 
now they're sort of bolstered. They're evolving at a faster rate because of this pressure that's being put on them. Is this where possibly the Denisovans come, where now maybe these certain Neanderthals in this whatever isolated region that the Denisovans were, I think it was near Globeki Tepe, which is in Turkey. So maybe they, for whatever reason, decided to, that their evolutionary or their edge instead of fighting would be, oh, let's just fuck them. <laughs> let's just breed with them, right? And that's where the Denisovan angle comes in, where this is like a human or homo sapien Neanderthal hybrid, right? Something like that. I don't know if homo sapiens is the right term either, because that would be what we are now. We're talking about much into the fur- further into the past than before I think homo sapien technically can be named. Hmm. Okay, so this kind of reminds me of something interesting because you know how some people alive today they're like, "Oh yeah, I've got some Neanderthal DNA." Right. And basically, what Danny says about the genetic evidence is that all of basically, like, once we got to the point of us hating Neanderthals, like we we never would like willingly reproduce with them, right? So, and if any baby was born that was like half Neanderthal, we would have hated it so bad we would have killed it, right? So, all the Neanderthal DNA we have in us probably came from those early years of predation before we, like, were... Basically, once we started to really broaden that distinction of, like, this is what we look like. That's what they look like. We don't want to look anything like them. All that, all the Neanderthal DNA that got into us came from those early days. But after that, though, it's like we're not having any part of it. But you said the Denisovans were like half Neanderthal, half human. Honestly, I don't know that much about them. I thought the Denisovans were like in Asia. Mm. But uh, yeah. I, I guess based on what you're telling me, it, Turkey's um, Asia. Yeah. And also, they don't find any hybrid skeletons anywhere except for that like Levant area. Hmm. Like they don't find any hybrids in Europe, which is where the Neanderthals and were for the most part. So, I mean, I guess it makes sense that the, the Denisovans would have kind of come from that area in the early days and maybe split off. Hmm. I don't know, I'd have to look more into that. Yeah. I just checked to see if maybe they referenced Danny's work in this book and they don't. It's not in the bibliography, at least. But yeah, this this says that 40,000 years ago, Denisovian Neanderthal and Denisovian human hybrids greatly accelerated the flowering of human civilization. Hmm. They explore the mental capabilities of these humanoids, humanids, hominids. But yeah, there's definitely overlap. And I mean, this is an area of research that I think has only been explored very recently because of the technology that allows people to sort of date things, carbon date things, and look that far back into the past. And I'm sure these skeletons yep. have sort of genetic variations or morpho- morphological variations, rather, that 
differentiate them, but it is fascinating to think when it comes to all these quote-unquote giant skeletons that the Smithsonian took and threw away. I wonder how many times that kind of thing has happened in the past where maybe what was considered a giant skeleton was actually evidence of Denisovans, Neanderthal, human hybrids. Yeah, and to that end, like whenever I hear... Like, oh, they found like giant skeletons in Florida. Like personally, I was thinking like, oh, they must have been like giant. And I kind of visualize just like a tall human. Mm. But uh, when you consider that like of all the primates on this planet, we're the only hairless ones. It's probably more likely that these giants were more chimp-like, Neanderthal-like. They probably had fur. Right. I feel like it's like a whole other spin that people aren't really considering Mm. it it, it would change things yeah well there are descriptions from certain people certain groups of giants living i mean take those or leave them i think it was the gentleman who first circumnavigated south america his name isn't coming to mind right now but he witnessed giants and they named Mm. patagonia land of the giants patagonia Mm. and i think that's spanish or Portuguese for Land of the Giants. They saw a giant person who looked like a human. They didn't describe him as hairy. Native Americans have described both hairy giants and what they described as like red-haired human-looking giants, which some people have thought maybe were like Vikings possibly or just Sasquatch. But yeah, it is interesting to consider a third option that maybe the Native Americans had been interacting with some sort of native or well native but neanderthal human hybrid or denisovan human hybrid right i mean who knows what the, these beings could have been as far as uh, as the myths say that the last giant was like thrown in a cave and lit on fire at mm. that point i think it was like the 1500s or the 1400s in southwest united states way before it was ever the united states but yeah, that's just that's a, a myth from I think the Hopis. So Yeah, I'm open to it. And part of me wonders, so it, it's like the, the cold European winters are what made the Neanderthals over there, but North America had its own ice ages. I wonder if something different but similar could have come about there. And maybe there's like this whole other history of primates in the Americas that we don't know about that led to these giants. I, I don't know. It's my, my only, I'm not the expert on any of this. My only hope for this podcast is that it will attract the interest of some others, get some get more people looking into it. I just, just feel like there's so much, I've got more questions than anything. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought it up and maybe now that, Danny's coming out with another book. That'll give us an opportunity to speak with him. Maybe that's why he hasn't answered our emails. He's been busy writing another book. So who knows? Maybe he'll want to go on a press run and talk about it on our our show. And I think the listeners ought to know about you by now. I talk about the hit kit every episode, but they certainly didn't know much about the man behind the hit kit. And I'm glad we were able to to bring that to them as well. But Yeah, if anybody listening has any thoughts on this Neanderthal predation theory, any 
comments you want to add, any suggestions for other researchers? Maybe there's somebody out there that, you know, Garrett and I aren't aware of who's also researching this stuff. Seems like the Denisovan Origins book that I just picked up could be related. But yeah, again, when it comes to this theory, Vendramini seems to be ostracized for writing the book. Has this been hard to research? Is he like the only source for this kind of information? I haven't seen much else out there about it. From his own writing, he, because I started reading his second book, and apparently this theory is gaining some ground in some academic circles, but to what extent, I don't really know. I have looked up some like critics online, and it just seems like most of the people criticizing the theory haven't really read the book. Mm. With that being said, if anyone is interested in this, this book is, it's written for the lay person. It's very easy to go through, but he's also got like 800 references for anyone who wants to get all academic and look up the sources behind what he's talking about. Mm. He's made it very accessible. I would have loved for more people to know about this and start digging, figure out if he's right, figure out if he's wrong. I just know it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to link the book in the description of this episode so people can go and pick it up. Certain it's available on Amazon because that's how you sent it to me, right? So thank you, Garrett, by the way, if I didn't already say that. But yeah, this is something that you know a lot of people may not realize, but very recently, I think the name of the being is Floriensis. Uh, something floriensis and that's the latinized name of this being only within the past 50 years discovered a humanoid creature that existed on these islands somewhere long time ago they found the skeleton so even recently we've discovered that humans are not the only living beings like us there may be other primates maybe sasquatch maybe neanderthal who knows, but I think this is an area that deserves to be discussed more in this forum, in these open-minded kind of podcasts. A lot of times people kind of dismiss anything evolution because they're in favor of creation. And I don't think the two are necessarily inherently opposed from one another. I think that the creator, whoever it may be, if folks believe in the creator, I do, I think the creator could have set the process of evolution in motion. I mean, that's totally feasible. So we're not talking about things that are oppositionary to one another, right? I think all of, all of it can be sort of under the same umbrella. But any final thoughts on this, Garrett, before we wrap up here? Man, I'm just excited to be here and time has flown by. <laughs> I wish we could have gotten Danny Vendramini to present all this. Oh, <laughs> I, I think we have a better chance now than we did before because we'll put this yeah. episode out. We'll put the title of his book in the episode and maybe he'll, it'll get back to him. Even the listener is listening. Hey folks, you want to hear us interview this guy, please send him a message. I'm sure he has a, a way of getting in touch with him. I've tried. Maybe there's another way that I haven't found, but uh, go for it. Let's see what we can do here. we got a big audience now, so I think we can make it happen. Hopefully we'll get him. You said he just put out, you're already reading his second book, so it's already out, right? 
It's already out. It is called The Second Evolution. I think it came out last year. Okay. But it just dives into team theory exclusively. He goes deep on it. Well, so, there goes um, everything I said, but... <laughs> All right. Interesting. I wonder what is stopping him from answering the emails then. Maybe, maybe the title of the marketing. show. Maybe he doesn't understand technology. Yeah. I don't know. Huh. He had his email available to find, so... All right. Well, we'll try our best. And like I said, listeners, help us out. Try to get in touch with him. Tell him we're talking about him. We want to interview him. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll find some more info. Maybe there's other people talking about it. But obviously, Garrett is the man behind the hit kit. So support him. Give him some more cash so he can afford to do more research in this realm. And maybe join us on the show again to go further. Support his inventions. He's always coming up with new contraptions gizmos as we like to call them he's got a couple on the way that i won't talk about but i've seen them and look really cool so if you don't already have a hit kit boom get one there's one right here that's right the lighter is boom right in there and you can hide whatever you want pencils joints blunts whatever you want right in there boom the lighter i love it Got a bunch of different styles. Enough about the hit kit. Garrett, you're the man. Thank you, brother, for doing this. Thank you for being here on the show. Anything you want to promote, I do all, all the time for you. Hitkit.com, or I'm sorry, the hit kit on Instagram or hitkit.us. Am I missing anything? I just want to plug the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. They're already tell listening. Your friends, tell your mom, <laughs> tell your dad. Tell everyone. Awesome. But yeah, they're already listening. They already know that. Well, they, they <laughs> should plug this show. They should tell their family about it. It'll either make them appear crazier or maybe real help help them realize they're not as crazy as they thought. So great suggestion. And as for me, we're gonna wrap this one up and uh, thank you for listening. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, and that is our episode with Garrett Blackburn, the man behind the hit kit. We talked about the hit kit at the beginning of the episode, and you've heard me talk about the hit kit at the end of every episode for the past uh, several dozens of episodes. So yeah, finally, we're introduced to the man behind the hit kit, Garrett Blackburn. Nice guy interesting guy sent me this book them and us by danny vendermini and like i said several times throughout this conversation if you're listening out there and you uh want to see us interview danny help us out reach out to him send him a tweet let him know that the my family thinks some crazy podcast is worth his time uh, i've tried i will try again but I'm a busy guy. I've got things to do. And if you want to see me dedicate as much time as possible to this podcast, you know what you need to do. You know what I'm going to say. Sign up on the Patreon right now. Sign up today. Sign up on the Substack if you prefer Substack. But sign up on the Patreon. That's where you get the best deal, the best bang for your buck. If you're a video head, then you might like Rockfin or YouTube. Guess what? We now have youtube members so you can become a youtube member and you get premium content 
bonus videos that are not available for the free audience. They're available for bonus supporters only. Some really fantastic interviews are there. Uh, so go and sign up today. And depending on how many YouTube members I get, I may or may not start a live stream, a weekly live stream. It's been difficult because I don't have all the equipment to quite pull it off. But we'll get there. We'll get there eventually with a better internet connection and maybe 200 patrons. Right now we're sailing above 150. If we can make it to 200 by August, that would make all my wet dreams come true. So please, folks, please, please help me help you create amazing experiences as you do whatever you do listening to this podcast while I do what I do best, talking to people about the fringe, the strange, and the weird, and asking the questions that no one else does. So if you like my style, you like this podcast, stop what you're doing right now, sign up on Patreon, support the show, and get access to all of our bonus content. We got stickers, we got merch, we got hit kits, we got all kinds of stuff. We even got a new sponsor on the way, top secret sponsor, you'll find out very soon so stay tuned and thanks for being here folks thanks for listening to this episode with garrett obviously the man behind the hit kit you can use the promo code crazy to support him and get yourself a hit kit the number one way to get lit and that's the perfect way to end this episode with garrett blackburn my friend our number one sponsor on the podcast and hopefully soon to be your friend when you buy a hit kit using the promo code crazy thanks folks now i'll see you next time arrivederci and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Shit and they don't know where it's coming from And like a hundred years we went saw upon before guns Check the facts, check the fed, check the stars Stanley Mines was murked for a water fuel cell car They each they own, you can stick with your own ways But eat the rich, you drink the motherfucking Kool-Aid And I can see the red on your lip stain White skin, blue collar, pure American made Fuck it, you can keep your blood soaked heritage And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah my girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts but never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots but it's all kinda hazy Good morning in the net feeling like I'm Dick Tracy My pap thinks I'm un-American and shady Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an alien It wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy Think that I'm off in the deep end One too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for a military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason 
steel beams, another 1492. And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue. And you be lit off the floor, and ain't got a clue. All your dreams just shit on a Rockefeller shoes. Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said. Ain't one brick left to go up in the Fed. They still got bricks of cocaine to make crack. Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this, got kin talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up camp. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kinda hazy. Good morning in the net, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged, baby. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien, it wouldn't phase me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.